0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Full Stop Podcast. My name is Michael Shapira. I'm an interviews editor coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, being of course the birthplace of the concept of liberty, but Philly is also where Full Stop began in 2011. On this month's episode, we're going to be talking about labor, and in particular about labor on campus. The topic of our most recent quarterly was graduate student organizing across the country. And we're going to be speaking with two contributors to that quarterly. Haley Huggett from Georgetown University wrote a really fantastic article about the worker-student distinction and how that might be a distinction that we would want to trouble. And we'll talk to Dennis Hogan, a PhD candidate in comparative literature at Brown University, about labor laws, where they came from, and why they kind of suck for graduate students. Before we get started, just one quick piece of business. You can support Full Stop by visiting our brand new snazzy Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash fullstopmag. You can help us out with contribution levels starting as low as $2 a month, knowing that all the money definitely does not go to me or the other editors, but goes directly to the writers and artists who make our magazine the best. So again, that's patreon.com slash fullstopmag. So without further ado, let's get to my interview with Haley Huggett, PhD candidate in philosophy from Georgetown University. Hi, we're joined by Haley Huggett um, from Georgetown University. And uh, welcome, Haley.
1: Hi, happy to be here.
0: Now, for those who haven't had a chance to read your article, do you think you could briefly summarize the main arguments?
1: Yeah, sure. So the main claim of the, of the article is that students are workers as well, or at least sort of workers, like proto-workers, you might call them. Um, I think that the main point of the article is to Argue that the activities that people perform that constitute student work, like writing papers or doing problem sets or group projects, running experiments, uh, all of that stuff, is actually much closer to regular work than we typically recognize. And the reason we don't typically recognize it is because universities, um, particularly like the more neoliberal private universities in the United States, um, want it to be the case, need it actually materially to be the case that we draw the the distinction between students and workers in a way that makes it the case that the largest possible class of people affiliated with the university are characterized as students rather than workers. And this comes out really clearly when you think about the grad union movement, as well as like university responses to student athletes um, and postdocs there's this claim that because you're a student, that all of your work activities aren't in fact work. Um, And the way the grad union movement has pushed back on that is to sort of affirm the logic of the 2016 Columbia decision, which says that you have two relationships to a university, one of which is a student relationship, and the other is a worker relationship. And those two relationships aren't mutually exclusive. And I think that's right, and I support that. But I also think that, like, we can go even further than that. And I hope that the grad union movement does go further than that to say, wait, like, it's not just that we're both students and workers. It's actually that we're kind of workers all the time. And that when we're performing sort of stereotypically student activities, we're also doing work in that we're building our human capital, which is actually not that much different than just Creating regular capital, right? The only difference is that building your human capital is the capacity to produce value later, whereas, you know, regular workers are just producing value in the moment. So there's actually there's a distinction still between students and workers on my view, but it's actually kind of a thin one. And we are sort of prohibited by the way universities function from really recognizing how thin this distinction is.
0: That reminds me of something we were emailing about before, um, which is you're a PhD student in philosophy, and your article reminded me a bit of some arguments that Elizabeth Anderson has been making recently. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about some of the philosophers or some of the thinkers that have influenced your um, approach to grad student labor and organizing.
1: So I was so glad that you thought of Elizabeth Anderson, because she's um, one of my absolute favorite philosophers. So it's extremely flattering that you thought of my work in conjunction with hers. Um, Her book, Private Government, in particular, has had a huge influence not not only on me, like philosophically, but also on me as an organizer. Um, So for those who don't know, in Private Government, uh, Elizabeth Anderson argues that Um, employers today actually rule our lives in a way that's very similar to how a king rules over his subjects. It's a kind of arbitrary and unaccountable rule that she terms private government. Um, And I was like, when I read that, I was just so happy to have it as a sort of organizing talking point because I found it really, really helpful for talking to people about joining our union. who were otherwise, like, pretty happy with the way things were for them at Georgetown. Like, maybe they got paid enough, they didn't have an issue with the health insurance, but being able to sort of use Anderson's arguments to point out that the way Georgetown structured in that we don't have a union, you know, before Gage came along, we didn't have a union, um, you know, if you like the way things are, those things can be changed or taken away at any time, um, and completely without you being consulted or even so much as like your interests taken into account. Um, And in a similar way, it's sort of like a king who arbitrarily decides to bestow favors upon some and punishments on others without any accountability. Um, Anderson's work gives us a way of critiquing those sorts of structures, those institutional mechanisms uh, whereby some people just don't have power or agency to determine what, you know, what, in fact, counts as acting in their interest. Uh, And so yeah, having having that uh, sort of in the theoretical background, I think was really helpful for for actually just on the ground, having organizing conversations, uh, and convincing people to join up and support our union.
0: You you mentioned gauge, could you explain a bit more what gauge is? Um, Because it's slightly different than other like organizing campaigns on different
2: campuses.
1: Yes, so definitely happy to talk about Gage. Uh, So Gage is Georgetown Alliance of Graduate Employees. Uh, That is our uh, graduate worker uh, union that we have at Georgetown. We represent about a 1,000 graduate employees in PhD programs and master's programs on Georgetown's main and medical campuses. Um, And we are, uh, so a brief history of our campaign, is that we affiliated with AFT in like the spring of 2017 AFT is American Federation of Teachers um, and then we were underground for a while we um, didn't really make it known that we were organizing we sort of built up support very slowly through one-on-one conversations and then we went public um, and basically by that I mean Georgetown we like told Georgetown about our existence um, and they responded to us initially in a, in this really sort of extreme way by saying, <clears throat> sorry, that we aren't in fact workers. So they responded to our demand for uh, recognition from Georgetown that we didn't even in fact count as workers. And so... Basically, we then went in through the, through this like protracted period of trying to get them to recognize us or at least let us have a vote uh, to determine whether people wanted a union. Um, and we then were able, through a lot of organizing and putting pressure on Georgetown, we were able to get them to agree to an election agreement. Um, and that that's really where um, our campaign sets itself apart from others in that we were able to get... Georgetown to agree to let us have our representation election outside of the auspices of the National Labor Relations Board. Um, And for just some context on on that, um, that means that, you know, Georgetown couldn't Taking it outside of the National Labor Relations Board means that Georgetown couldn't challenge our right to union representation if we won the election. And so we've seen that at some other places, like grads will win their union election and then the university just refuses to recognize them as the exclusive bargaining representative for the people who voted on them. Um, they just you know, continue to do what's called challenging jurisdiction, which is the idea that um you know the National Labor Relations Act doesn't apply to them so basically just the short of it is that going through AAA or like leaving going outside of the NLRB for our election uh enabled us to avoid a lot of nasty stuff with like the Trump NLRB and uh sort of prevented Georgetown from from raising legal challenges to our election. So that's really the main difference. Other grad union campaigns have done that as well. Um, as I'm sure you know, Brown's grad, Brown's grad union also, I believe, won um, a private election agreement. So it's not something that makes us completely unique, but um, it is sort of a difference in that we, our entire you know, um, election was housed outside of the sort of more traditional NLRB process.
0: And I wonder if you could talk about maybe one other way that Georgetown is unique, which is that you're um, religiously affiliated. And I wonder if that had anything to yes. do with uh, their willingness to engage, gauge and not resist.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Um, and so Georgetown is a Jesuit university and in the landscape of Jesuit universities has tried to sort of like stand out by being a bit more progressive than other Catholic and Jesuit universities see themselves. That doesn't really apply to like students' reproductive rights at Georgetown. That's still a huge issue. Um, But with stuff like labor rights, Georgetown has sought to um, uphold Catholic social thought, uh, which sort of emphasizes the dignity of labor and the rights of workers to, um, you know, have a say in their working conditions, to or, to organize, all of that stuff. Um, so Georgetown actually has um, sort of in that spirit this policy called the Just Employment Policy, which commits Georgetown to remaining neutral in union elections um, and to paying full time employees a living wage, various nice things like that. Um, and that policy, it's important to note, was one because um, in the mid 2000s, a bunch of students went on a hunger strike to try to uh, force Georgetown to live up to these Jesuit values. So I think that's one thing that sort of often gets uh, overlooked in thinking about Georgetown and why it's the kind of institution it is. Like. It has these nice values because students and other community stakeholders decided to hold Georgetown to them um, and were willing to take direct action. And so the fact that Georgetown is a labor friendly university has to do with these Catholic values, but also like the actions of people, you know, in particular, this group, the Georgetown Solidarity Committee, uh, which is like a labor justice Group of undergrads on campus. They uh, have done a lot to make sure that Georgetown actually lives up to these values. Um, and the existence of the just employment policy, Georgetown is still being really weird about, like whether or not we count as, like uh, whether or not grads are included under the just employment policy. So there's still some questions there about, like, do they, like, is our, is their response to our campaign, like consistent with the just employment policy, like it's kind of still up in the air. But there's no question that like Georgetown has this sort of pro labor brand now um, that has helped us, that definitely helped our campaign um, and made Georgetown more of a even though their their response to us wasn't always super friendly, right? They did come out and say they didn't think that we were workers at first. Um, But I think they were easier to sway in our favor. And it was easier to get them to come to the table and agree to an election for us and come to the table and bargain a contract because of this sort of uh, Jesuit commitment that they have going on.
0: Now, you mentioned a second ago, you had some support from undergraduate coalitions, and this comes up in the article as well. And I'm wondering how you're conceiving of some nascent campaigns to unionize undergraduates. And I think maybe the question is whether you think this helps undermine some of the neoliberal corporate logic that is driving up costs and degrading the -hmm. the culture of universities, or whether there actually is something significant about undergraduates as a potential labor class that could gain recognition.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. Um, I think it's fantastic that undergrads are unionizing and there's been some arguments i've heard some people argue that um oh all this is really going to do is you know drive up tuition for undergrads so while they might be organizing for better um you know uh pay in one area they're really just going to be you know so putting lining their pockets with better pay they're just going to be like the university that they work for is just going to take that out elsewhere in the form of tuition uh, increases. But honestly, that's the same argument that people make against any union uh, on a university campus. Like, oh, is this, you know, going to be, are these raises or benefit improvements or whatever going to happen, you know, by pulling money, uh, more, extracting more tuition dollars. And I think unions have it within their power, especially using tools like bargaining for the common good, I think unions have it within their power to just challenge that basic logic. And it's definitely better to have people organized and and recognizing that, um, you know, they have they have power to challenge the status quo rather than not. Even if, like, in the short term, there might be, you know, potential issues with raising tuition or whatever. Like, it's just better to have... People fighting that rather than and and organized and recognizing those as problems rather than just the status quo, which is everything is determined by, you know, the board of directors or these just like very sort of unaccountable bodies that don't include like the whole community as stakeholders.
0: That's great. And I just had one final question, which was to ask about your own research, um, because you're not a full time labor organizer, you're also a PhD student, so what 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 are the questions and thinkers that interest you as a philosopher?
1: Awesome, so yeah, I am writing my dissertation right now. I'm in like the tail end of it, thank God. Uh, on um... in in the fields of like moral and political philosophy. Um, And the project is about basically cooperation and reciprocity and specifically like what kinds of creatures contribute to political communities and what kinds of creatures can be thought to cooperate or engage in sort of reciprocal um, relationships. And there's a long tradition in political philosophy that I'm kind of arguing against that thinks about cooperation and social contribution as being sort of like uh, the, the sort of Rawls-inspired model of, like, we craft the laws together by, like, rational bar- a rational bargaining process. Um, and what I'm trying to do is really open that up and think about how a broader class of creatures, including perhaps, like, non-human animals, um, sentient AI, or whatever, even people with severe cognitive disabilities or neuroatypical individuals can be thought Uh, uh, to be contributors to political communities and thus eligible for certain kinds of rights and privileges on that basis so yeah it's really a it's sort of related to the article in that uh, the article thinks about sort of like what kinds of work is required to be a contributor to society broadly Um, and I'm thinking about that same question in the dissertation but in a more I guess potentially more abstract way more about how do we add like how do we morally contribute to political communities? I guess that's sort of the the tie between the article and the dissertation.
0: That's wonderful. It's a great topic, and maybe we'll we'll oh, get a thanks. chance to check back in once that congeals into a finished product.
1: Awesome. Yes, I hope that congealing happens soon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but in the meantime, thanks for for uh, joining our our second podcast.
1: Oh yeah, thr- I'm thrilled to thrilled to be a part of it. Thank you so much for having okay, me. Okay,
0: great. Thanks again, Haley, for that wonderful interview. Now for the second interview, we're going to turn to Dennis Hogan. As I mentioned earlier, Dennis is a PhD candidate at Brown University in comparative literature. And Dennis is going to talk about uh, the article that he co-wrote with Hilary Rash about organizing on their campus outside of the normal NLRB framework. So this will be a really interesting history lesson about where our labor laws came from and why they might be inadequate to our current moment. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dennis Hogan. All right, well, welcome to the show, Dennis.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Um, So for those who haven't had a chance to read your article, which you co-authored with Hillary Rash, another uh, graduate student worker at Brown, could you provide a brief sketch of the argument that you two make and maybe talk a bit about what brought you two together to write this piece?
2: Yeah, so the piece makes the argument that the NLRB, which, um, which has sort of been the default way of securing union representation, right? You have an NLRB election, you follow the NLRB process, is for many reasons not an option, right, for graduate workers. Part of this has to do with the fact that the, even the sort of the rights guaranteed under the law are increasingly precarious. Part of this has to do with the fact that, that, you know, as we kind of say in the piece, even absent the precariousness of those rights, there are huge uh, existing problems with the law itself. So one of them is kind of the way that the law arises uh, as, as this, this compromise between labor and capital in a time of increasing labor-capital conflict uh, in the 1930s. And then the other is, is, is sort of the way that the, the NRB's enforcement of the law has become increasingly unfavorable to labor uh, in, the current, um, in the current union environment, right? So basically, broad strokes, this compromise works out really well, arguably for both parties, through the post-war class compromise of the 1930s, to the 1970s, right, but starting with the sort of the decline in union density, and whether you want to date that to kind of like the financial crisis of the 70s or, or Ronald Reagan, those the effectiveness of the NLRB begins to decline. It becomes more and more politicized, right, and 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 much more politicized than ever in our last in the last 10 years or so. Um, and what that means, right, is that there's increasingly there's delays. There's rulings that are more favorable to employers, but there's also sort of just really protracted election processes, which favor employers either because, you know, um, workers leave, workers get discouraged, it gives employers time to uh, respond to the arguments that are being made, make sort of changes, and so ultimately, right, it's very, very difficult, no matter what, to win uh, a union election, but in the NRV process, which in theory regulates it and makes it easier oftentimes doesn't actually even do that Um, and so that's kind of the first part of the argument right we kind of lay out where the NLRV comes from and uh, and and kind of what compromises had to be made in order to get it to get it in place then we talk about the ways that it's sort of failed to keep up with the current conditions of um, of labor in the United States right in 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 time when labor is sort of increasingly fragmented, increasingly casualized, where people leave employers much more often, where employers are thought of as having far fewer obligations to their employees, right, we make the case that the regulatory regime has not kept up with that reality. Um, and so then finally, we kind of turn to our own campaign and talk about, you know, how we were able, even in a scenario where we weren't, weren't comfortable using the NORB. Um, to secure union recognition, to bring the university to the table to voluntarily recognize the union. And we kind of make the case that that it's difficult, um, but, but this is a strategy that we think is to a certain extent generalizable to other graduate workers and, and other workers full stop.
0: Now, you have the distinction at Brown of um, being a, a name that's attached to an NLRB decision, not a good one, that prevented private university graduate student workers to unionize back in 2004, which was overturned in the Columbia decision of 2016. So I wanted to ask how that legacy loomed in your, uh, current organizing efforts, um, excuse me, on the Brown campus this time around.
2: Yeah. So, um, that legacy was definitely something that the administration was aware of. So back in 2004, Graduate workers at Brown organized sort of in the last, the previous window that we had had to organize and and, and, and petition for union re- representation. And the administration, which at the time was led by Provost Robert Zimmer, who's now at the University of Chicago, where he continues to uh, bust unions, fought the graduate workers all the way to the National uh, Labor Board. And we never found out what the results of that election was because the ballots were impounded. You know, and the result was that the right to organize for all graduate workers at all private universities got overturned in a decision that, as you said, had Brown's name on it. So I think that this time around, the administration was sort of not eager to repeat that history. You know, I think that they would have been more than happy to have Columbia overturned, but they didn't necessarily want Brown's name on it. You know, and that was a big reason why um, we were able to to bring the university to the table. But I also think that, you know, that's one condition, but the other condition that's worth talking about is the fact that there was already sort of an ongoing um, history of of grad workers here on campus being organized. You know, that has to do with the fact that back in 2014, there was this six year funding crisis where funding for a six year of graduate school had been kind of all but guaranteed as long as you were in good standing, as long as the lines of communication with the department were open. But there was a move to centralize a lot of the decision making in the graduate school who decided, you know, we want to make five years a much more normal completion time, which is, I would add, totally out of step with completion times, especially in the humanities and social sciences nationwide. And so sort of abruptly, half the applications for six-year funding were denied. And that meant that dozens of graduate students were left scrambling, right, trying to decide, where they were going to get an income from the next year, whether they were going to be even able to finish. Some who were international faced the possibility that they might have to leave the country because they no longer were eligible for visas. Um, and it was hugely problematic, especially coming, you know, as it did with basically no warning. Um, and so Sugzi, the the organization that is now the union, was for, formed then in response to this crisis. You know, and, and, and every year since then, we continued organizing sort of around different issues, um, and so by the time we were actually at the table demanding union representation, we were very much a known quantity to the administration. And I think that they had some sense that um, we knew what we were doing and, and we were serious about it.
0: And has the administration become accustomed to organizing or sorry, to, to negotiating with with SUGSI? Do they just accept this as a sort of reality of the campus now?
2: Uh, I would say yes and no. You know, I think that there, there's some initial reluctance, you know. And so, for example, back in 2015, when I first came to Brown, uh, we were fighting for um, dental care. So the provost at the time had promised at the beginning of the academic year that dental care for all graduate students was a priority, that they were going to really make happen. And then when February, when the budget came out, there was no dental care included, you know. And so folks were surprised about this. And, um, and and so we kind of put together a campaign to hold the university to its word and fight for dental care. And then, you know, a couple months later, surprise, surprise, they were able to find discretionary money in the budget to fund it for the next year. And then ultimately, the year after that, it got into the budget permanently. And so all graduate workers at Brown now have full dental care um, as a result of this process. Now, the university does not like to acknowledge that that came sort of directly as a result of our organizing, you know, but for us, it seems pretty clear uh, that that was the case. I think now, you know, especially given that we were signing so many workers up on union cards, you know, the university kind of had to admit, was forced to admit that we represented quite a lot of people and so, you know, for that reason, meeting with us was worth their while. But, you know, I think that this sort of comes back to the part of the lesson of the, of, of the article, right? Which is that you don't get power because somebody decides to recognize you. You know, somebody decides to recognize you because you've already sort of amassed the power by doing the organizing work. Um, you know, and, and, and we don't want to make the case that we sort of invented this line of thought. It's, you know, sort of increasingly becoming the consensus view. But it certainly is reflected in our experience.
0: And it also seems to be reflected in some national trends, Um, certainly going back decades. But uh, having a massive uptick since the Sanders campaign, there's been a growth in the DSA, uh, a kind of resurgence in labor militancy that you see in teacher strikes in West Virginia and Oklahoma and places like that. So I was wondering how Suggsy's been able to leverage some of the energy you've built on campus and made connections using that with the broader labor movement.
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that there's definitely a sense that the moment that we're in, which is this moment of of really, I don't want to say unprecedented, but certainly difficult to remember uh, in my lifetime, a similar case. This moment of labor militancy, and and I think that that folks are increasingly watching, you know, strikes happen, watching strikes succeed. So, right, so 2018 was a a sort of a record-setting year for strike action, and 2019, you know, looks like it's going to sort of be right up there with 2018. So, you know, here there was a huge, in New England, there was a huge strike uh, for stop-and-shop workers that I know a lot of our members were really inspired by. And so, yeah, so I think there's increasingly a sense that 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 forming a union and taking action um, together uh, as a labor organization is something that's viable and it's something that's getting results. And I would add, you know, kind of going back to the, the, the argument of the piece, that it's not because the NLRB has gotten better or more efficient at adjudicating these um, these disputes or, uh, or at speeding the process of union organization and recognition. Right, it's actually because things have gotten worse. So folks are increasingly kind of coming to realize that they're on their own out here. There's no, there's no sort of administrative or legal process that's going to assure them rights that they're not willing to organize and fight for themselves. And so I think that that is becoming an increasingly stark reality. And um, in the graduate worker context, it's happening alongside the crisis of academic labor that sort of just continues to, to proliferate, right? So the university is charging higher and higher tuition. Uh, it's taking on more and more students. There's larger and larger revenues. And yet the jobs for which we're ostensibly being trained sort of continue to disappear. These good, stable Middle or even upper middle class jobs uh, that that are part of the promise of what you get when you attend graduate school. You know, so I think increasingly graduate workers are coming to realize that there is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's just this, right? So this is sort of the model now for university labor. There's going to be quite a lot of cheap, term limited or otherwise precarious labor, and those folks are going to be doing most of the work of teaching and increasingly even research. And so that. I think has contributed to a sense that there's first of all, kind of like nothing left to lose. You know, I think that that even in sort of earlier eras of graduate worker unionization, folks were nervous about stepping uh, out of line, right? Because, you know, part of the promise is that if you just sort of went through this, this occasionally quite harrowing experience and took your lumps, then at the end of the day, you would be rewarded by, you know, going with the flow. And that's kind of how this very hierarchical system works. But I think that increasingly that's becoming perceived as a false promise. And so the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I think that 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 graduate workers are increasingly amenable to seeing themselves as um, no different from other kind of workers, right, who share these same fates in the contemporary economy. You know, whether that's um, lack of stable long-term employment, whether that's, low wages whether that's you know increasing uncertainty about whether the career for which you're being trained will continue to exist um you know we are not different from from lots of other folks in the economy and there's also it's not like there's somewhere else for us to go you know so so like i for example uh am not necessarily all that employable i mean certainly you know i could figure it out if i had to but 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 I've I've spent a lot of my life now being trained for these jobs, right? And so we kind of have gotten to the point where we're where we feel that we have to fight for, for this institution, and we have to fight to kind of make this institution humane, because it isn't right now. Um, and and by that I mean the university in general, not not just sort of Brown specifically. And so yeah, so I think that there has been been an opportunity to sort of build community with other labor organizations and to see ourselves as participating in a much larger a much larger shift towards more more concerted um, if I can use the word more militant labor activism.
0: I wanted to end by asking you about your own work, um, lest we subsume everything under politics now uh, and forget that there's culture too. Uh, you're a grad student in Complet. And we're normally a literary magazine, so maybe we could end by having you talk a bit about your dissertation research.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, my dissertation, which right now is called um, La Reina de los Mundos, Crisis and Creation in the Central American Transit Zones, 1848 to 1914. Um, and, you know, that's provisional. Sort of everything about this is provisional uh, until it gets turned in. Um, but But I look at the relationship between literature, culture and sort of geoeconomic intervention at the end of the 19th century in Central America. So I kind of make the case that at this time, um, Central America and particularly the the trans Isthmian transit zones of Panama and Nicaragua go from being sort of some of the least important places uh, in the former Spanish Empire to some of the most important places in the world as as capitals need to move goods uh, and people, you know, quickly from different parts across different parts of the world um, become more and more central to the to the global economy. So so I kind of argue that that part of what the role of writers and intellectuals is, is that they invent this idea of of what I call uh, an emporium model of development, right? Where instead of relying on extractivism or an export model, you know, like other sort of regional neighbors, they want to develop this idea of becoming the emporium of the world where the goods and services and the people of the world will sort of all come and gather and congregate and that will be this new source of of wealth and so there's there's one sense in which these ideas are reflected in the literature and 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 we can kind of look at how they're represented but there's another sense in which you know writers and 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 other cultural figures are actively creating this world right by imagining that Central America is a place where these kinds of futures could happen by arguing that, you know, investment is necessary by depicting scenes that like may that cause people who make decisions about investment and even invasion, and certainly infrastructure to take notice. And you know, so Complitz likes to focus on kind of borderlands or areas where the distinction between cultures, languages... Peoples are 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 somewhat blurrier, and and I think this is this is a sort of a classic case of that. But there's also a sense in which there's this there's this kind of unpleasant underbelly to it, right? Because this is also a story about uh, about environmental devastation. This is also a story about migration of, of of cheap labor in in increasingly uncertain economic times. This is also a story about about the imposition of, of, a, of a racial segregation system where, where one hadn't existed before. You know, and so just to mention a few authors, um, on the English side, I, I'm looking at people like Joseph Conrad, uh, Anthony Trollope, Mary Seacole, who's a very sort of interesting... She, she's a, Jama- a British Jamaican woman who then lives in Panama and then goes to serve in the Crimean War. O. Henry, who coins the term Banana Republic at this time. And then um, on, this, on the Spanish side... People like Rubén Dario, a couple of Panamanian authors like Justo Aracemena, Emilia Denise de Casa, Colombian authors like Salvador Camacho Rodan, and among others. So, you know, some of them very well known, others others less well known, hoping to change that.
0: Well, that's great. Well, we'll uh, check back in once that is completed into a book, and we'll have a further discussion about Panamanian literature.
2: Yeah, several several years from now.
0: Okay. Thanks so much for joining us, Dennis.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of
0: course. Thanks again to Haley and Dennis, our guests this month. You can check out their work in the most recent quarterly which you can find at our website, fullstop.net. You can find the introduction to the quarterly there and ways to purchase it. And one of the best ways to purchase it is to go to our Patreon page, patreon.com fullstopmag, where you can sign up for as little as $2 a month and get all kinds of great work that we do, including this most recent quarterly. We want to thank Matt Orenstein for the music and Samantha Kerr and Emily Sankowitz for engineering this month's episode. So we'll be back next month. Thanks so much for listening.